so you, you've given us a glance of where genetics is going in the cat world, you know, someday hopefully arriving at that precision medicine place. But I want to circle back for a minute to one of the interesting stories that you've been involved with, and that's hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So do you want to talk a little bit about that story and, and um, how we got the genetic tests we got and why we haven't gotten more? And yeah, just maybe do you want to flesh that story out a little bit? Because that's an important disease. Yeah, it's certainly, uh, we'll see that it's in a good number of cat breeds and even in random bred cats as well. So um, the first point is... Sorry for saying Sorry Media presents the Purr Podcast, the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team. If you're dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and textbook author, and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek. Hello, this is Dr. Yola Kirpenstein. And this is Dr. Susan Little. And this is the Per Podcast. And Dr. Susan, I am really excited about our next guest. Yes. One, because it's a very special person, uh, not only because she's very famous in our realm, but also because of the crazy stuff she does. And hopefully we will going to talk about both of those. So uh, Dr. Susan, would you like to introduce our next guest? Oh boy. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know where to start. So <laughs> our, our guest is someone who is a great friend to, to me, um, somebody I've learned so much from over the years and somebody I just wholeheartedly love how's that so there's a bit of love going out yeah and and somebody who has like the best name for her profession ever so this is Dr. Leslie Lyons and we'll let Leslie introduce herself and tell us who she is and what she does all right all right well thank you uh Yola and Susan um I am so pleased to be uh, part of this podcast because, yes, Susan is a very long and dear friend. I met her first through the CFA when we were together working at the Wind Feline Foundation booth. And this is when buckle swabs are just starting to be available for cats. And so we were going to different cat shows and that really started our sampling for domestic cats and for the different cat breeds by doing buckle swabs and and she's loved it so much i've gotten her to actually follow me to egypt and we we collected buckle swabs from cats in egypt and and we really do it all over the world now so and being that susan and yola are veterinarians these are my go-to people also when i get a crazy vet question i'm not a vet i'm a phd so but still often i get vet questions so since i'm not allowed to practice medicine um, I do call on Niels Peterson and Richard Malik and Susan and everybody to, to help me provide uh, proper veterinary questions as well. But my background, I am a geneticist. Uh, I am from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, about an hour south, Uniontown. And uh, of course, I'm a big Steelers fan. And <laughs> to me, all is right with the world if the Steelers are winning. So COVID or not, all is fine because Steelers are now 5-0. and oh. <laughs> and um, so that's all good. But I've, I've trained in genetics and uh, at University of Pittsburgh. And then I went to the National Cancer Institute, which we'd like to call the National Cat Institute every <laughs> once in a while, the NCI. And that's where I got involved with cats. I never chose to be involved with cats. 
I went to the NCI because of the signs they did and they did happen to work on cats. So I also interviewed for my postdoc with cattle and fish guys and a company and even the FBI. So, um, so in the end, I chose to work at the National Cancer Institute. And usually it's your postdoc that sets your career. And one of my first projects I worked with there was Havana Browns. They were interested to know if they were getting too inbred. And so Marilyn Raymond, Dr. Marilyn Raymond was developing microsatellites and we developed those, but then we had to use them for something. And so a population study was perfect. However, we didn't have any comparisons for the Havana Browns. Had to, how did we know whether they were too inbred or not? Well, that's what started going to cat shows to uh, get all the other breeds because you had to compare to the rest of the breeds and the random bred population. And then the second project I got interested in uh, was actually the Burmese cranial facial defect. And from there, we continued to collect more and more um, samples from different health projects for cats. And we continued to work on some of those. And then um, in, after about seven years, I was recruited to UC Davis. And that was great because then I had a whole pool of veterinarians around me. I originally took genetics because in order to get into vet school at Penn, you had to take genetics. And that's why I took genetics. But then I thought, ah, oh, this, this is really what I want to do. So, um, so now I have the best of all worlds because I get to work with veterinarians and I get to work with every specialty. And so I get to learn all the nuances about each specialty, primarily all about cats. And so for me, my life is just a dream. I, I don't feel like I work. Um, I'm always at the forefront of learning new things and, and being around veterinarians has really facilitated that. And then about seven years ago, I was recruited to um, University of Missouri here in the Midwest. So I've been on the East Coast, West Coast, now in the middle. And um, it's been fa fabulous working at University of Missouri. The personnel are so easy to get along with and to work with. And the area is so pleasant to be in. Um, it was a really pleasant and useful move to, to come to University of Missouri. And this is where we've launched the 99 Lives Project, which maybe we'll talk about during, during the podcast. Yeah. And, and what do you do exactly? So, so what position did you get at Missouri? So what are you now? I, I am, well, I've been a full professor, a tenured professor at Davis and at Missouri, but at University of Missouri, I also have the position that is called the Gilbert McLaurin Endowed Professorship for Comparative Medicine. So really what I have to keep in mind, what I mainly do is try to find inherited diseases and health conditions that are in cats so that we can figure out what's going on with the cat, maybe develop a therapeutic, and then translate that to human medicine as well. So comparative medicine or translational medicine or precision medicine, whatever keyword you want to use at the time, they're all the same thing. So um, really, I, I get to find, professionally get to find inherited diseases and traits in domestic cats. So during these two podcasts, we're really going to dive into the genetics of the cat. And I'm so excited about that. So Okay. That's rule. <laughs> yes, they do. Yes, do. So um, I, I think the first question I have is the cat genome. We know it now. Correct? Yes. Yes. And, um, and 
And so how has that helped you with your studies? And, 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 and were you part of that? Or, you know, tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, absolutely. So when you sequence a genome, you pick one cat and you make that your reference cat. And the idea was to find a very inbred cat um, to be able to build the reference. And that was actually Dr. Christina Narstrom's cat named Cinnamon, who is an Abyssinian. And why that cat was so inbred is because she was working on the retinal degeneration in the Abyssinian cats. So she had had a colony for over 20 years where she was breeding them and breeding them and breeding them to produce cats that would be interesting, one, to find the gene, but also to develop therapeutic things for, for vision as well. And she happened to be at the University of Missouri. So she had been at various different places. She's Swedish, um, but she happened to be at the University of Missouri before I got here. And um, so they got DNA from cinnamon to make the reference assembly. And so what a whole genome sequence in, in most people's mind, what that means is we have read the DNA from the beginning of the first chromosome all the way to the end of the last chromosome. And in the cat, there's 18 what we call autosomes. And then there's also the X and the Y. And usually when we build a reference sequence, we capture the, y, the X chromosome as well. But the Y chromosome is pretty special. It has a lot of repeat sequences in it. It's very, very hard to make a reference assembly for the Y chromosome. And it doesn't have a lot of genes on it that are involved with the normal processes of a, of a mammal. They're generally the gender related genes and stuff, the sex linked genes. So usually the Y is a separate project and that's true in most all species. So when we talk about the reference genome, it's gonna go one through 19 cat chromosomes or one through 18 cat autosomes plus the X chromosome. Now, when you sequence something, you can do it to different resolutions and to depth, what we call depth of coverage. And so we began out as a very rudimentary reference genome, but now we've gotten better and better and better. And just this past week in PLOS Genetics came version 9.0 and we purposely ver named it version nine because uh, cats have nine lives, is the publication that is the newest cat genome reference assembly. And it's called a long read assembly, which means it's a very good, strong read. It's one of the best assemblies there are for any mammal at this point in time, other than maybe human and mouse. So we are kicking it. We're, we're doing really good. And um, so that just came out. Uh, Reuben Buckley, my postdoc, is the first author. So I'm on the paper, Wes Warren and Bill Murphy. And then Bill Murphy is doing other work that you're gonna see is gonna be a fabulous jump in the genome assembly. And we might actually even change who the reference is gonna be. Hmm. So the reference might change because of uh, a new technique called phased assemblies. And it's only been, in, been around for about five years. So it, it allows us to, to sequence over repeat regions that are very difficult to sequence over. So um, those are just technicalities, but important technicalities because you ask, well, how does this help me? Well, if I don't have all the genes put together and 
if I don't know where all the exons are, then I can't actually figure out whether my mutation for a disease or a coat color is actually there or not. And then there's something other than having the sequence, you have to do have something called annotation. So that means, okay, here we have the sequence. So what? Where's all the genes? There's a gene at this spot and this spot and this spot. And what is that gene called? Well, that gene matches this in humans and that in mouse and, and maybe some other species that starts with a D. So we'll, we'll annotate the genome too. So if I don't find a disease trait, I might wait six months, look again because the annotation has improved and then I might find it. So I have a lot of open disease projects that we haven't solved yet, but every time we get a new update on the reference or a new update on the annotation, um, we can, we generally make a step forward. So um, that's what our reference assembly is. So cinnamon, the Abyssinian cat is our reference genome. And without that, it's uh, back to doing linkage studies and um, studies that take a good five, 10 years to do. And now we can typically do something within a year, actually. And this is something that is really, that, that gene is really shared by everybody. Yeah? Everybody's putting in into this central, it, it's not that everybody's working on their own little thingy and, and doesn't share, but this is, it's all accumulated in one spot where that's how you can work. That's where you get that, all that information all the time. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, well, so the reference assembly is always a public thing. And so the reference assembly, the DNA sequence and all the information has actually been out on the market for at least two years, maybe going on three now since uh, 2017. So now is coming the paper that told you how we did it and everything. But then also, Besides the main reference, you have people all over the world producing genome sequences of cats of interest. And this works for any species. And cheap, the sequencing is so cheap now, we can have really good sequencing for as little as like $600. That's cheaper than your MRIs and your CT scans and everything. So you can have a very good high coverage genome sequence but now you always have to compare that back to the reference. The reference is all assembled and in the proper order. When you do a genome sequence, it's a bunch of little teeny bits that then you have to compare to that reference to see what's the same and what's different. So we developed something called the 99 Lives Project. And that's something we started here at Missouri. Because cats don't have a lot of funding, um, which is a shame because there's more cats in, in people's hands and arms than there are any other species. Um, it, it you know, it's really hard to not say that word. <laughs> You're doing good. I know, I know. But I'm doing good. So, um, <laughs> so um, it's a shame that, that people don't put as much money into science and research of cats than they do others, than really most any other species. And here we are, most people in the world, a third of US homes have cats. And that's probably true throughout the world and how many people take care of cats just that are feral cats and stuff. So we could really do with more support. But um, in order for us to be very effective, we developed this 99 Lives Project. 
And all that means is people from all over the world, when they have sequenced a cat, they send that sequence or they'll send us the DNA and we'll do the sequencing here. And uh, we'll generate the sequence and it goes into one data set. So it's called the 99 lives data set. And we compare all of them to, so we do the actual processing of the, of the data. And then at the end, you get what's called a variant call file. And that's what everybody needs. Everybody needs to know what DNA variants are in their cats and other cats so they can look for the main one of interest that they're interested in. Um, say it's cardiac disease, say it's HCM. So if uh, another investigator is looking for HCM, they're gonna sequence their cats with HCM, but we're gonna hope that most other cats of the world that are in the 99 lives data set, which is over 350 cats at this point, will not have that disease mutation. So then you start looking for disease mutations based on frequency. And most of the time we're looking for rare things, um, but then sometimes you're looking for common things too. Um, so you have to, you know, have to know a little bit about how you think they're inherited and things like that. So this is one thing that the cat community has that most other communities don't have and actually argue over and are actually very, are less efficient because you'll have four or five investigators that are producing their own data sets instead of all combining. So we've had most of all the cat community contribute to the 99 Lives project and, and hopefully just faster and faster, we're gonna find disease mutations and coat color traits and, and fur types and, and all kind of interesting things. And, and now the beauty of it, what we really wanna do is precision medicine. A cat walks into your clinic you think it probably has some heritable condition. It hasn't been hit by a car, it hasn't been poisoned, but it's sick for some reason. For $600, we can sequence that cat, turn that sequence around for you, and maybe give you a list of candidate genes that we think this might actually be. And hopefully then you as the veterinary can tailor the therapeutics and the diagnosis towards that condition. That's what precision medicine is. Make it precise for that individual cat using that cat's DNA profile. And we can do that if we had enough money to keep people in place that allows us to, to uh, analyze the sequence. So all the tools and all the pipeline is in place. We just be, need to be able to fund the personnel. And, and where can they find more information if they are interested in the 99 Lives uh, project? Yeah, just uh, if you Google me or University of Missouri 99 Lives, there's a website for the 99 Lives project. And so more information can be found there or you can always drop me an email. I'd, I'd say right now I probably have about a dozen projects that are from veterinarians from all over the world of, hey, sequence this for me. I think it's an indoor narrative metabolism. I think it's a lysosomal storage disease, but it's actually cheaper to sequence the whole genome than to spend the time on one gene at a time and sequence one gene at a time at this point. We'll put a, a link to 99 uh, Cats Project in the show notes too. And so you, you've given us a glance of where 
genetics is going in the cat world, you know, someday hopefully arriving at that precision medicine place. But I want to circle back for a minute to one of the interesting stories that you've been involved with, and that's hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So do you want to talk a little bit about that story and, and um, how we got the genetic tests we got and why we haven't gotten more? And yeah, just maybe do you want to flesh that story out a little bit? Because that's an important disease. Yeah, it's certainly, uh, we'll see that it's in a good number of cat breeds yeah. and even in random bred cats as well. So um, the first point is, okay, so I'm not a veterinarian. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm going to talk about it from what I know as a geneticist. And certainly for a geneticist, any project that we do, crap in is crap out, right? <laughs> so... I need to have the best veterinarians and the best diagnosis possible for any project that we do. And so I'm always trying to get advice from people like Mark Kittleson and Jens Hangstrom and Virginia Louise Fuentes and all the, the strong cardiologists that are very research-based now, Joshua Stern at UC Davis. And, um, and I hope they can be consistent on what the diagnosis is of HCM is in the first place. So we have to start there and, and we hope that we have uh, a left ventricle that is a certain thickness. I'm not sure what cutoff it is at this point, whether it's six, 6.5, seven millimeters. And somewhere it has to be, yeah, somewhere in there and has to be measured at, at the right spot. Um, and. You know, these are things that uh, also like Kate Mears has been working on for decades. And, and so I always have to defer first to them. Do we have a good diagnosis uh, for this disease? So Kate Mears has been the person that has identified in uh, the gene called mycin binding protein C3, two different mutations, one for Maine Coons and one for ragdolls that we know and, and we've shown by metadata analyses that there absolutely is a high risk for having HCM with these mutations. We don't hear as much about the ragdoll one, but you, you hear a lot about Maine Coons and, and we have done work to help show that this is a risk factor. And, and this is a little tricky because most of the diseases, coat color traits and things like that, that we have worked on in the past are clearly Mendelian traits where they're on or off. They're mm -hmm. autosomal recessive or dominant. You have the mutation, you get the disease. But people forget, even like with something like polycystic kidney disease, you have the mutation, you're going to have a cyst. But it doesn't tell you the severity of the disease. And that's what we have with these HCM mutations as well. They confer a risk, and it's a high risk. And so if you have one copy of the mutation, so we consider this a dominant disease, maybe with what we would call incomplete penetrance, meaning the cat has the mutation, but the disease doesn't penetrate. Um, or the disease might not penetrate until you're older. So it has a delayed age of onset. And so we certainly know as your cats get older, it's more likely they'll have disease. And if they have two copies of the mutation, they'll get disease at a younger stage or also even more severe disease as well. And so these are the cats that are having uh, 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 cardiac crises and, and actually succumbing to disease very early in life. 
Um, so we do know those mutations occur. But what we have to remember, comparative medicine, is if we look at humans, there's hundreds of genes that are known to cause hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and hundreds of different mutations. Hmm. So I think Dr. Mears has worked hard and has demonstrated here's two very common mutations that are in ragdolls and Maine Coons, but it didn't explain all the Maine Coon uh, disease right from the very beginning, we knew that. So just like in humans, it's probably gonna be true, it is true in cats, yeah. that you're going to have different genes and different mutations all over the place, whether in the same breed, different breeds that are causing disease. So we can somewhat calls, call these private mutations. Um, a good example is actually in humans with polycystic kidney disease. Every family with polycystic kidney disease has their own private mutation in PKD1. And so it just so happens the Persian PKD1 mutation that's the one we got. Mm. But should we expect other ones? Sure. Because right. in humans, that gene has mutations all over the place and every family has their, their so it's a, it's a genotyping nightmare. It's a testing nightmare. You basically have to sequence the whole gene. So we should expect this as well in HCM that you're gonna find more private mutations. And, and this is gonna be a hard thing for veterinarians, hard thing for genetic testing hard thing for cat breeders to understand because we're used to one disease, one mutation, Bob's your uncle. Yeah. And, now, uh, <laughs> and now it's more difficult. And these are also risk factors. And, and we have to remember that all, all the diseases in our body are controlled by more than one thing. Even um, like a simple blue color in cats, one mutation, in melanophyllin causes cats to be blue, that blue gray coloration. However, if you look at a cat, their shade of blue yeah. is different. Look yeah. at a carat versus a, a chartreux versus a British short hair versus a Russian blue. Those are all different shades of gray, right? 50 shades of gray. <laughs> so um, uh, we will see that other genes absolutely interact with the main gene to cause these variations in expression. And um, actually I just wrote an article about this. It's in a, it's in a New Zealand cat magazine uh, called Felis Historica by John Smith Smithton. And uh, so I have a little col column in that magazine and it's uh, called everything you need to learn about genetics you can learn from your cat. <laughs> and uh, so the most recent one is on 50 shades of gray and variations on a theme. <laughs> and uh, so, um, so that's HCM is a tricky one. It's our first disease that we're going to have to deal with probably multiple different genes you have to test for. Genetic counseling is trickier. Yeah. And, um, and then of course the management of the disease is tricky. Will one mutation cause a different type of management than another mutation? And that might very well be likely. Yeah, yeah. Going back to the basics a little bit, uh, can you talk a little bit about the cat genome compared to other animals? Is it really different? Is it kind of the same? Uh, can you, can, because you said you do a lot of comparative uh, research, mm -hmm. is a cat more similar to humans than 
any of the other animals in certain parts or not. Can you explain a little bit the basics of this genetics? Yeah, absolutely. So this is kind of what got the National Cancer Institute interested in the cat as well is because the cat genome, uh, so every species has a different number of chromosomes. However, overall, we have about the same number of genes somewhere, I like to say 21,000 or so. And, um, and it, so it's right within that ballpark of 19 to 21,000 genes. Every species has these same genes. One species might have more, like the cat will have more olfactory and ferrum detection genes than a human was because a human has evolved away from those type of genes where a human probably has more genes involved with the development of the brain than the cat does, right? So there's, there's these little differences. But overall, the mammalian body is similar across all the different species that we work with in veterinary medicine. So we know the basic set of genes must be all functioning in the same way. And their DNA sequence is very similar. So the DNA sequence um, between a, um, like a domestic cat and an Asian leopard cat, that's as same or different as would be a chimpanzee and a human, okay? Mm. And so, and then a human to a cat is maybe, it depends on the gene, but can be as close as 100% the same, or on average, maybe 10 to 15% different at the DNA sequence. Um, but we will see that the protein that is coded by the DNA is even more highly similar. So one, the genes are very similar because the genes are the basic genes that make a mammal a mammal. But then we're also now starting to find out, and, and this is where the tricky stuff has come in, most of the, my time, I've been finding DNA mutations within the coding part of the gene, within the exons that are all spliced together to make the messenger and RNA, which gets translated into the protein. The mutations I find mess up that protein. Well, now we're starting to find out that, yeah, maybe 50% of the mutations we're looking for are actually in the regulation part of the gene which is not coded for in the protein. So that'll be upstream of the gene and it can be close or it can be far away. And so that's why finding mutations now are becoming a little trickier. We found all the easy stuff. Now we're going to the harder stuff. So this is where back to, we've known the cat genome. If you line up the cat genome chromosome by chromosome and match it to humans, it is very, very well conserved. One cat chromosome will match up nearly perfectly with one human chromosome. Mm. Now, it seems like in every lineage, uh, there seems to be some weirdo. So in rodents, actually the mouse, which is our model organism we use for everything, is all shuffled around compared to humans. And then, um, then there's something in the Canis lineage as well that is all messed up and it's all screwed up. And um, so it, what we're getting back to is, well, if all that rearrangement, all the genes are rearranged, what about the regulation? Mm -hmm. So the control regulatory elements might be more in the right place uh -huh. when you compare a human and a cat 
than if you compare a human and a mouse or a human and some other species. So we're now starting to come full circle back to the point where cat chromosomes are, are very pretty chromosomes. They're easy to identify if you stain them. Uh, you and I can actually cut out a picture and match them all up, where with other species that's very difficult to do. And, um, and we can line them up and, and know how they arrange to humans. So we're coming back to the point where the genome conservation, the organization of the genes and the distance between the genes is now becoming a more important aspect of our research than we had ever thought. So we, we knew that was true in the beginning, that gene organization was conserved between cats and humans. Uh, very well conserved compared to other species. And, um, and now we're coming back to find, you know, maybe that's important uh, because we're getting better tools to figure out regulation of genes. And if you think about it, if, if all of us have the same genes, but man, a cat looks like a cat and we look like humans, what's the difference? The difference is when those genes are turned on and when they're turned off and for how long. And, um, and the timing and those mechanisms there. So um, the, the future is definitely looking at gene regulation, timing and expression. And that's this so cool. is a great time to stop the first part. That's a, that's a wonderful <laughs> thing, thank you. I, I feel like I'm on the edge of my seat. I, I, she wants more, what's the I next know. question? <laughs> I know, we're all like, oh, keep on going, keep on going. It's so exciting, but yes. We're, we're at the end of the first part, but you will be back. So that's the, that's the good news. So, so we have to tell them, stay tuned. Stay yeah. tuned. Same, <laughs> stay tuned for sure. Same cat time, same yes. cat channel. Yes, yes. And there's so much more to talk about. And then, I, you know, I'm really excited because I also want to talk a little bit about uh, some other stuff. <laughs> that, okay. Uh, <laughs> so that's yeah. a cliffhanger for next week. So be sure you join us or... next week at the Purple Fest. <laughs> So Dr. Susan, do you want to do the ending? <laughs> yes, I, I will do the ending. Um, although I do question the convention that you always do the beginning and I always do the ending, right? Like no, some, no, I did the ending last time, remember? You yeah, forced like me to. Yeah, once in 85 podcasts, you did the ending. <laughs> and he it's because it. you do such a wonderful job. Oh, yes, I know. Butter up, Susan. Um, well, thank you, Dr. Lyons, <laughs> for episode one. Um, and thanks to everybody who's listening. You can find a list of all our, our episodes at perpodcast.net. You can uh, listen on our website and you can listen to our podcast in any podcast app you use, whether it's Spotify um, or the uh, Google app or Apple Podcasts, uh, we're there. So tell your friends, please. And uh, if you uh, like us, please leave a, a good review because that's how other people find us, actually. That's the main way we're to spread by people who enjoy us leaving good reviews and uh, stay tuned next week for more of Dr. Lyons. You did an awesome job. Thank you. Dr. Susan Little is a feline medicine specialist with two cat-only hospitals in Ottawa, Canada. She is best known as an international speaker and as the author and editor of two textbooks, The Cat, Clinical Medicine and Management, and August, Consultations in Feline Internal Medicine. Along with three cats, she also admits to owning two dogs. And you can follow her on social media with the handle at CatPetSusan. Dr. Yurla Kirpenstein is a 
a diplomate of the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons and a big cat fan. His specialties range from surgical oncology and reconstruction to minimally invasive surgery. He is the author of two textbooks on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently at Hills Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at G-V-E-T-S-X. This episode is made possible by the generous sponsorship of the Take the Pledge Against Struvites in Pets Facebook page. Did you know there are three easy steps to treat bladder stones in cats with lower urinary tract signs? Step one is to take a radiograph, and if there is a stone present in the bladder, step two is to use the Minnesota Urolith app for iPhone and Android to determine the most likely type of stone. Step three is to treat the cat for at least two to three weeks with an appropriate diet and see if the stone gets smaller. If so, keep feeding that diet until the stone is completely gone on follow-up radiographs. If not, check compliance with the owner and look for alternative treatment options. Join veterinarians worldwide to take the pledge not to remove struvite stones by surgery anymore. The opinions of this podcast are those by Dr. Susan Little and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein. Veterinary medicine is a complex profession, and often there are multiple diagnostic and therapeutic options for different disease processes. If you're a pet owner with questions, please go to your local veterinarian. If you're a veterinary professional, ask your questions on our Instagram page at per podcast. 